everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Last minute turning my pack on. Rookie move. Good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. Wow, that was great. Kelly, I just want to thank you. That was awesome. I didn't even know I needed that, but I did. So thank you for leading us on that this morning. Thank you, worship team. You guys sound great. So good to be with you in person. So good to have you joining us online. And maybe that's today. Maybe that's later this week or sometime down the road. Just so glad to have you all with us. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series called Losing My Religion, Reconstructing a Deconstructed Faith. All week, I've had people asking me, so what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I keep telling them, the Bible. And they're like, okay, Mr. Saucy Pants. Yeah, I know you're teaching on the Bible, but like what? I'm like, no, really, like the Bible. Like I have the really big daunting task of talking about the Bible and trying to help, hopefully trying to help us reconstruct some uh, issues that some people have with the Bible. Specifically, my goal is to walk through whether the Bible is reliable, whether it's accurate, and whether it's authoritative for our lives today. I personally find this stuff, this stuff super fascinating um, and encouraging to my faith. So this morning, it's going to be a little more teachery than preachery. There's going to be some facts and some information, but I hope that it doesn't feel draggy. I hope that it encourages your faith as well and empowers you moving forward. So here's a few common questions that people often wrestle with in the Bible or to do with the Bible. Can we really trust the Bible? I've heard that it's full of a long list of mistakes and contradictions. Is it historically accurate? Hasn't it been proven false? I've heard that the Gospels were written so long ago sorry, so long after Jesus walked the earth that all sorts of stories and legends got added in later. Isn't the Bible full of ancient and outdated moral teachings regarding things like stoning and chauvinism and sexuality? Why does the church only include four Gospels and exclude others? Why not the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary? Has anybody ever asked any of those questions or know somebody that's ever asked any of those questions? Yeah. It's a wrestle. Before we dig in, trying to work out some of these things, um, we need to start with some basic understandings about the Bible and ancient, ancient documents in general. See, the Bible, it wasn't actually written as the Bible. It was, it's an accumulation of 66 different books. It was written by over 40 different authors. It was written over a span of 1,500 years ago, accumulating about 2,000 years ago. Anybody ever, uh, anybody a fan of Marvel out there? MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe, yeah? So the MCU has about, I think, 25 movies now, right? And they're all telling the same story. They're different. They have unique characters and unique plots, 
but they're all coming together to tell the same story. Written over a period of, I don't know, 13 or 14 years now, right? The Bible's kind of like that. It's one big story found in a bunch of little stories pulling it all together. So we also have to grasp that the Bible is an ancient document, and we can't treat it the same way that we would treat modern documents. See, very, very few people were literate back in the day when it was written, so they couldn't read or write. Uh, People who could read or write were very important in that day, and the things that were written down carried huge intrinsic value. It cost a lot of time and money to write something down. So if you're going to write it down, it had to be something worth writing down. Even today, this is still kind of true. Like if you're having a discussion with somebody and you're going back and forth with a disagreement and then one of you says, well, I heard in the news or I read this article, all of a sudden the, the conversation changes, right? Because there's weight behind it, even if the article's garbage. Our world is very different today. We all know how to read and write. Well, you know, phones and computers kind of fill in the gaps, and I think we're, we, we knew how to read and write, and we're kind of coming back down a little bit. But, you know, we still, we still send emails with typos and reports with typos because we rely on our technology. But in the general idea, we know how to read and write. Imagine how much harder it would have been to write and transcribe, doc- transcribe documents without all that we have today. It was a completely different culture, different process, and we need to keep that in mind while we're talking about various arguments against the Bible. So part of the reality that the Bible is really old is that it can receive a lot of criticism about whether what was originally written back then is still what we're reading today in our Bibles. Many skeptics, atheists, even people who are on this journey of deconstruction, maybe that's you in here, They often point to the idea that the Bible has been mishandled, that the original content has changed, it's been lost, or it's been manipulated. So why the heck should I trust what the Bible has to say if it's not even the message that was originally given? And that is a great point. If it's true that the Bible isn't the same as what was originally given, we shouldn't trust it. So then the question becomes, how reliable is my Bible today? Is it actually the same message that was given all those years ago? So let's dig into some facts real quick and figure out whether it can be trusted or not. One of the most common arguments against the Bible is that it is full of mistakes and contradictions. Again, there were very, very few people in that day who could read and write. But there were these people called scribes who were trained in just that. And their entire job was to copy manuscripts. The scribes were meticulous in their work. They, they knew what they were copying. They knew it carried authority. It was precious to them, and so they were so, so pres- uh, precise in their copying. We have very few originals, as in like the actual thing that Paul wrote, or the actual thing that Luke wrote, or the actual thing that was written on behalf of James or John or whatever. There's essentially none of those that exist. And that goes for every ancient document. It is extremely, extremely rare to have the original penned piece of papyrus that Paul wrote on, or any other ancient document. So what would happen is they would take this original document that they did have at the time, and they would make copies. And the scribes, 
would be very meticulous, and often they had a scribe, a scribe over each shoulder watching as they were writing. And if any mistake was made, all three of them had to initial the correction. Otherwise, that whole thing had to be thrown out. Okay? That's how serious they took their job. However, it is true that there still were mistakes that got a part of the document, often because of fatigue or loss of concentration. I'm sure you can imagine writing something down in a complex Greek or Hebrew language for hours and hours. You're bound to make a little simple mistake here and there. There's this guy, Bart Ehrman. He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. In it, he claims that there are over 400,000 errors in the Bible. Okay, I hear that and I go, whoa, that's a big deal. It could very quickly turn us off from trusting the Bible. But if you look at what he actually did to calculate that number, he says every little typo. So if I make a little typo, a, a change of a word, a misspelled letter, a, a grammatical error, if I make one little error, and then that document is copied 100 times. Okay, so now that document, 100 of those documents have that one error, right? He counted that as 100 errors, okay? So it's not 100 distinct different errors in one copy. It's 100 errors with one tiny little word difference. So you can see how 400,000 all of a sudden comes down to, I don't know the actual number, but a lot less significant distinct errors. I actually found it funny. The book that he wrote about this has 16 errors in it. And there's a million copies that were sold. So his book has 16 million errors, right? I found that funny. <clears throat> However, I do want to point out that this is still significant. There are still errors in the Bible that were copied incorrectly. Um, but it doesn't discredit... Uh, what am I saying? I'm losing my spot. What do we do with those? That's my point. What do we do with those errors? See, these problem passages or mistakes are not really what we typically think they are. They're not long narratives, chunks of text, and stories that change the sanctity of the Christian message. It's not like the original version had, you know, Jesus got married and he had all these kids and then he died in the ripe old age of 97. No. It, and then somewhere along the way, they change it to, oh, Jesus actually died on the cross, and then he was resurrected and he ascended. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking in the very, very large majority, very tiny, almost insignificant errors. Most of them are a word here or a verse there. In fact, there are only two disputed passages in the New Testament that are longer than two verses in length. And the Bible outright tells you about it. I encourage you, pick up your Bible, English version, if you go to Mark 16, verse 9 to 20, and John 7, verse 53, 8 to 11, those are the errors. I don't do it now, I'm preaching, you can do it later. But in it, it'll say something like, either in a footnote or above at the top, it'll say, the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage, okay? We out ourselves when there's these big chunks of errors. So, I'm not up here denying that there's mistakes and typos that have been translated on. And there isn't a scholar or theologian that would disagree either. But because we're aware that there are these challenges, uh, <clears throat> scholars have developed what they call textual criticism. 
It's essentially their science of looking at ancient manuscripts to determine what the original wording and intent of a document was, because we don't have the benefit of having that original document. So really quickly, let's just break down. There's four categories of textual differences. By far, the largest group of these textual differences is called spelling and nonsense errors. The most common form of this is known as the movable mu. Essentially, it's when the letter N is placed at the end of a certain word when the next word begins with a vowel. We have the same sort of idea in English, right? We would say a book or an apple. Grammatically incorrect, if you flip it, you know, an book or a apple. Grammatically incorrect. But it's not hard to decipher what the original intent was, right? Nonsense errors occur when a scribe wrote a word that just doesn't make any sense in the context, often swapping out a similarly spelled word, usually due to fatigue, inattentiveness, or misunderstanding of the text that he's copying. Here's an example. First Thessalonians 2, verse 7, it says, We were horses among you. Does that make sense? No. So, what the scribe does is he looks at all the other copies that he has, and he goes, oh, this, this section, this lineage of copies says horses, but the rest of them say epioi or nepioi, which is you know, similar spelling in the Greek, but it's a different word, and it changes the meaning. It's not hard to figure out what happened because uh, you can look at other copies to decipher what the actual intent was when there's something that's clearly a nonsense error. The second largest group consists of minor changes, including synonyms and alterations that do not affect translation. So a common variation is the use of the definite article with proper names. In Greek, you can say the Barnabas, while English translations drop the the. So some manuscripts might say the Barnabas, and some might say Barnabas. That's considered an error if it's copied differently than the original. Another example in this group would be word order differences. So in Greek, it's a highly inflected language. Word order doesn't affect the meaning nearly as much as it does in English. So here's an example. In the Greek, you could say, Jesus loves John. Okay? That sentence can be written 16 different ways and still mean the exact same thing. But if it's worded differently than the original, that's considered an error. Sometimes it gets swapped just because they're writing and it's, it's so, the, the language is so different and inflected that it's just, it rolls off. The second smallest group are meaningful changes that are not viable. So these are changes that are significant and could be a possible fit. They're not like a misspelled word or uh, a grammatical error. They're typically a different word in the place that makes sense. When you compare it to other copies, though, it's clear that it's not the right choice. So in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, the gospel of God is found in almost all manuscripts, while the gospel of Christ is found in a late medieval copy. The fact that the very, very, very large majority of the copies that we have say God, and only a few handful of copies that were written later say Christ, it doesn't take very much rocket science to figure out, okay, God was the original, someone later accidentally changed it to Christ, let's go with God, right? The final and smallest group 
are both meaningful and viable changes. These make up less than 1% of all the textual variants that we find in the Bible. Meaningful means that the variant changes the meaning to some degree, in most cases not overly significant, and viable means that the variant has some possibility of reflecting the wording of the original text. In most cases, it's just one word. For example, in Romans 5 verse 1, some read, let us have peace. The Greek there is, I don't know how to say that, eshelmen. While others read, if we have peace. See, it's the exact same word, eshelmen, but with the accent over the O. Okay? You can see how that could be a mistake that would be made accidentally, just to put in the accent over the letter. But it makes a significant difference to the text. It changes from let us have peace to if we have peace. As important as the issue is, neither variant contradicts any of the teachings of Scripture elsewhere, and both readings state something that is theologically sound. This final group of the meaningful and viable changes, that's where those two large examples I told you about in Mark and in John, that's where those would fall under uh, this bigger section here. Scholars take these things very seriously. Again, it's why they outright tell you that they're there, because they're not trying to hide anything from you. But neither of these passages do anything to change the message of the New Testament and are completely in line with the rest of the Gospels and Jesus' teaching. All right, I know that may have been a lot of gibberish to some of you. Take a breath. Okay. The point is that there aren't actually that many variants between all these different manuscripts, and the very large majority of them are essentially meaningless or can be solved very easily. If I said, a apple today, nobody would be confused as to what I'm trying to say. If I said, we were horses among you, you would know that I've made a typo, and you could easily be able to go back and find the proper wording. If I said, the Barnabas, it sounds strange to us because we don't talk like that, but it doesn't lose its meaning. And Greek is a very complicated language. If I say, Jesus loves John, or John is loved by Jesus, it's essentially the same thing, just written differently, right? You get where I'm getting at? All right. Basically, I'm saying there are people much, much smarter than you and I in terms of Greek and Hebrew languages and ancient manuscripts that they examine these documents over and over with the same text, and they have put together what they can say with 99.5% certainty is the original text. Okay? That is huge. The Bible that we have today is over 99.5% accurate to the original word that was written. 99.5. If you get that on a test, you're like, 100%. That is a big deal. This means that the words haven't been fudged. They haven't changed. They haven't been made to say something else. The Bible, as you have it today, is almost perfectly translated to the original meaning when it was written over 2,000 years ago. So as I said earlier, it's important to compare ancient writings with other ancient writings to determine their reliability. So let's take a look at some other ancient writings that were considered true to their original and authoritative and see how the Bible compares with them. Scholars look at a couple of things when it comes to determining the legitimacy of copies and whether they represent the original well. The two big factors are the length of time from when the original document was written to the oldest surviving copies of the original. 
So the shorter time between the original and the copies, the shorter that gets, the more reliable the writing. There's less time for the stories to be changed, myths to build, and errors to accumulate. Think about it. If your grandpa was alive and, and fought in World War II, he could tell you some stories. And if you took it seriously, you could probably retell his stories quite well. But as you pass down those stories to your kids, and your kids pass them down to their kids, and down to their kids, and down to their kids, and down to their kids, all of a sudden, your grandpa's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson's story, version of your grandpa's story, is probably going to be at least minorly, if not significantly different than the stories originally given, right? It's like broken telephone. The second hugely important factor is the number of surviving copies. So think about it. If you're trying to essentially recreate what the original text actually said from thousands of years ago, the more copies you have to reference, the more accurate you're going to be. That way, if there's an error in some, you can reference other ones and figure out what was actually meant to be said. A whole lineage could be incorrect, but you could have a bigger bulk over here that tells you the right uh, translation. Think of it like a puzzle. Say so you're doing this big 10,000-piece puzzle. If you've got you know, five or 10 pieces, you have essentially zero idea of what you're doing. You don't know what, what the puzzle's representing. But if you have 100, 200, 500 pieces, you're starting to get a better idea. You still are limited in your knowledge, but you, know, you might be able to see like a flower there, or it's, it's, a, it's a forest scene or something. If you have 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 pieces of the puzzle, comparatively, you're set. You know what's going on. You might not have everything, but you have a really good idea of what that picture is going to be. So now that we have an idea of those two factors, the length of time and the number of copies, let's take a look at some historical documents to see uh, what we're working with. Throw that chart up on the screen there. All right, can you see those numbers? It might be a little small. See it okay? So these are uh, other ancient documents that were that are widely accepted as true, as valuable, as authoritative, as true to the original, okay? So we've got just an array of things. Basically, if you look at them, the time between them, but between the original and the copy, the shortest time is about 400 years. The longest time is almost 1,400 years between when it was written and when the first copy of that original that we have still remaining, okay? Those are long periods of time. And then we see the number of surviving copies. Most of them are, you know, 10, 8, 7, 20. Then we got one with 100, one with over 200, and we have one with 643, okay? Now let's throw up the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have everything that's written less than 100 years after the original. Okay? So everything else that we consider true and authoritative, it's at least 400, if not 1,400 years. The Bible, from original to copy, less than 100 years. And then you look at the number of copies. We have over 5,700 Greek manuscripts. Okay? The next biggest on the list is 643. And the next biggest to that isn't even close. 5,700 different copies to look at and try and figure out what the original actually was saying. If you include other, it got translated to Latin and some other languages early on. If you look at all those other handwritten copies, we have over 20,000 different copies of the, of, of the New Testament. 
The New Testament in Greek alone has 10 times more copies than the next highest on the list, and really more like 100 or 200 compared to most of them. If you include the Latin and these other languages, that 20,000 number, we're talking 1,000, 3,000, 5,000 times as many copies as some of these things on the list. And remember, all of those are considered historically accurate. Nobody is questioning their validity. You heard of Aristotle's Poetics, anybody? There's five copies, all of them dated around 1,400 years after the original. Anybody heard of Plato? Seven copies, 1,200 years apart from the original. I know this all sounds like, what? 1,200 years, seven copies? What are you talking about? In 2021, we live in an incredibly instantaneous day. Something happens in the world and is reported on within minutes, if not hours at most. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to stream sports online, and I have to remember to turn the notifications off on my phone, because there's a delay when you're watching online. And so I'll be watching the game, and I'll get a text saying, oh, Austin Matthews scored. And then 15 seconds later, oh, great, I already knew that. Right? We're so instantaneous in our world. But again, that wasn't how the ancient world worked. So we can't compare against our culture. We need to compare against the culture of the day. 30 to 100 years sounds like a long time. But in reality, it is so short compared to these other historical documents that we accept as valid that are closer to 400 to 1400 years. You may have been taught that you can't trust the Bible because it wasn't written until many years after Jesus died. I just want to clearly tell you that that is certifiably not true. Scholars across the board will tell you that the New Testament is by far the most trustworthy ancient document ever to be written. That's not a a Christian stat. That's like a scholar stat. The most certifiable document, ancient document ever to be written. If we can't trust the Bible, it means we most definitely can't trust the rest of those writings. Or if we do trust the rest of those writings, it means we absolutely must trust the Bible. You may be thinking, okay, that's all well and good, but all you've told me is that the writings of the Bible are reliable, that they haven't changed from original to what I'm reading today. But how do I know that what was written is actually credible? And that's another great question. If I wrote a book saying that the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup in 2020, And then there's a bunch of copies made, and it's out there, and years down the road, that thing's found. It doesn't make it true. It just means that the original is copied correctly, right? I know. 2021. It's our year, baby. 55 years. Man. I'm sorry. Sore spot for us. We need to look outside of the Bible to figure out if it is actually historically true. We know that it hasn't changed from the original writing, but where does it actually sit in history? Does the Bible record true historical events that can be firmed, confirmed? One of the most important things, one of the most important methods is by cross-referencing uh, through archaeology. So there is still plenty that has yet to be confirmed by archaeology. For many years, There were a number of people and places in the Bible that couldn't be confirmed by archaeology. There was no evidence that they existed outside of what the Bible said about them. Some people take this to mean that the Bible is historically inaccurate. And that's a fair argument. But the reality is that as time goes on, 
More and more previously unfounded biblical facts are confirmed through archaeology. I could do a whole message about what archaeology is finding to confirm what the Bible says. But for the sake of time, I just have to skim over them. Some examples of things recorded in the Bible that had not been previously proven outside of the Bible would be the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was no evidence that they even existed in the first place, never mind that they were destroyed. Uh, Whether King David was a true historical figure, uh, the existence of this group of people called the Hittites and their civilization, this pool at Bethesda and these five roof colonnades, all these things couldn't be verified. And so people said, oh, they can't be verified. The Bible must be false. These examples and a number of other ones were used to point that the Bible was historically inaccurate. But here's the thing. As time goes on and more digging and recovering work has gone into stuff like this, every one of those things that I just stated has been resolved. Archaeology has uncovered evidence for each of these and many other things. Even as simple as the boats that Jesus and his disciples went across the Sea of Galilee in. No boat like that had ever been found. Never mind one that could carry Jesus and his 12 disciples. But then during a severe drought in 1980s, the Sea of Galilee dropped to an abnormally low level, and the remains of a 2,000-year-old boat that was buried in the mud was discovered. This boat perfectly matched the description of the New Testament. It could be rowed, it could be sailed, and it could fit up to 15 people. That's a picture of it there on the top left. There have been plenty of accusations that the Bible must be incorrect because we can't find evidence of these people or this city or this this whatever. And there is much that still hasn't been accounted for. But the one thing that is true is that as we continue to uncover more, we continue to confirm the Bible. A world-renowned Jewish archaeologist, Nelson Gluck, has said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. That's big. Over the past 2,000 years, there has been opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to disprove the thousands of geographical and historical references in the Bible. Verses referring to historical kings and places, texts, giving numbers and events, And there has not been a single one that's been disproven. Not a single one. Not only have biblical claims been supported through archaeological findings, but there's never been a single finding to refute a single biblical claim. I'm getting wound up here. Anybody else with me? This is a big deal. Part of trusting the Bible as reliable and accurate is always going to be a step of faith. We're never going to know with 100% certainty that the Bible is perfect, that archaeology has proved every single thing in it. It's 2,000 years old. It's not going to happen. But at some point, we need to look at the evidence and choose to take a step of faith and believe that it's true. The final point I want to touch on this morning is whether the Bible is authoritative for our lives. We've seen that the Bible is reliable, that the book that you're holding in your hand is over 99.5% certainty that the same book that was originally written. And we've seen briefly that the Bible is historically accurate, that time and time again, archaeology proves it and has never disproved it. So we can trust the Bible up here as an idea, but now, why should you trust the Bible in here as authoritative and personal for your life? 
Why should you follow the teachings of Jesus and Paul and Peter and James and John in your everyday life? The simple answer is because of Jesus. Let's dig in to figure out how Jesus pulls us all together. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, God in human form, then what he has to say matters more than anything else, any other perspective. So if he said that something is scripture, or he set into motion something to be scripture, then it is scripture. If he was who he said he was, then it's not about the books that I think should be in it or that you think should be in it. No, it's about what he said should be in it. Now, I know there's a big assumption here. I'm assuming that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, God in human flesh. And I know that the reality is that some of you probably don't believe that, or maybe you're not sure what you believe on that. You're in the process of deconstructing that part of your Christian faith. If that's you, I'm super glad you're here. I'm super glad you're joining us online. And I really want to encourage you to come back next week, because we're going to be spending our entire time talking just about that. Jesus, is he who he says he is? Why should we believe it? So, if it's okay with you, um, I need to make the assumption that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. If you're not sure, again, come back next week, and then you can listen to this again the week after and figure out where you stand. Okay? So, since Jesus is God in human form, simply put, we can accept that the Bible is the inspired word of God because it is what he set apart. When Jesus made reference to the scriptures or to the law and the prophets, he was referring to what we call the Old Testament in our Bibles today. So in his day, the New Testament hadn't been written yet because it was his story and after him, right? So it was just the scriptures. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law of Moses until everything is accomplished. In John 10, 35, he says, the scripture cannot be set aside. Again, when he says scripture, he means Old Testament. Mark 12, 36, Jesus introduces a quote from the Old Testament by saying, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. So clearly to Jesus, the Old Testament was no ordinary collection of writings. No, he viewed them as scripture. He viewed them as carrying authority. He referred to the Old Testament writers as being inspired by the Holy Spirit. So since we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then the very fact that Jesus accepted the Bible as authoritative and taught that the law and the prophets, as scripture gives them authority, that they are the word of God, that means that we have to accept that, right? If Jesus is who he says he is, then we need to accept what he accepted as scripture. You following if we move to the New Testament, again, we, we have to look to Jesus to see if he gives it authority. A big chunk of the New Testament is a record of what he did and said and taught. I think it's safe to agree that the words of Jesus can be considered authoritative scripture, right? If you've got a red letter Bible, that's what I'm talking about. The literal words of Jesus put to paper. But Jesus also set out the foundation for the rest of the New Testament to be accepted as scripture through the apostles. The word apostles means those who have been sent. And Jesus appointed a very specific group of apostles and uniquely commissioned them to assume a prophetic role and speak God's word to the people. The apostles were Jesus' 12 disciples, plus a couple other guys, and the last one was Paul. And the basic requirement being that 
They were people who had been with Jesus through his earthly ministry. So they were true eyewitnesses, and they directly taught under the direction of Jesus. These men were appointed by Jesus specifically to speak in Jesus' name and carry his message to others. The Holy Spirit gave them a remembrance of the teachings of Jesus and inspired them to teach others the truth of God as well. Jesus also told them that they would be guided into all truth. He says, Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth by telling you whatever he receives from me. This is why the teachings of the apostles were included in Scripture. So, the mark of what would be included in the New Testament is really quite simple. Was it written by, or based on the teaching of Jesus, or by one of his apostles? In Acts 2.42, we read, They, as in the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves because they saw Jesus appoint them as apostles, and saw and heard Jesus teach on the roles that these men would have. And they knew that they had been given special authority to speak on behalf of Jesus. So back to the big question here on the authority of the Bible. Why these 66 books? Why not others? How did they decide? Is it, it really is simpler than it can sound. It wasn't a group of church leaders sitting around weighing out the pros and cons of various books, or it wasn't them randomly pulling books out of a hat. No, the Old Testament was accepted because Jesus had already accepted it as scripture. The first, books of the first four books of the New Testament capture the life and the teaching of God himself in human form, and the rest of the New Testament has basically been personally commissioned by Jesus, written by his apostles through a special working of the Holy Spirit as they wrote. In AD 90, the ancient church made the, official, uh, made the Old Testament official through what they called the Council of Jamnia, and in A.D. 397, the New Testament was made official through the Council of Carthage. But it really was more of a formality. Again, they weren't selecting different books to be included. They were simply formally recognizing what had already been established as the Word of God by Jesus himself. And then our Christian Bible was officially born. So to summarize that quickly, basically, if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, God in human flesh, then we can trust that the scriptures are divine, that they're divine word of God, because he accepted it. It's about him, and he appointed it. And if we trust Jesus as God, as Lord and Savior of our life, we trust his authority over our life, then we need to trust the Bible that he set out as his authoritative word of God. Just as I wrap up, I want to be super clear about one thing through all of this. We don't have a relationship with the Bible. Christianity isn't about faith in the Bible. If you follow this to-do list, then you get to go to heaven, or it's your roadmap to life. That's garbage. That is not the gospel. It's so much better than that. Christianity is about having faith in Jesus being a follower of Jesus. We are unapologetically Jesus people. We put our faith in a person, not a book. And we're going to spend, as I said, the next week talking about Jesus. This book, though, goes hand in hand with Jesus, and it is his revelation after all. Our hope, our life, our salvation isn't found in the Bible, though. It's found in Jesus alone. 
I spent a lot of time this morning talking about historical reliability, accuracy, and authority of the Bible. And honestly, there's so much more I could have said. But I'm very well aware that those things aren't necessarily your problem with the Bible. For some of you, it's what the Bible says about the Christian sexual ethic, or sexuality, or marriage, or money, or loving your enemy, or forgiveness, or suffering, or the list can go on. And I get that. And I think we all have some work to do to deconstruct and reconstruct some of those things. But one thing we can't do is reconstruct out of line from the gospel of Jesus. Some of these things need to be reconstructed. But at the same time, there are cultural norms in our day that we need to reconstruct in light of the gospel. Please don't reconstruct out of what feels right. We need to start with the Bible. Again, it is God's revelation. It is his revelation of himself to us. It is his word that he set for us. You, get, you have like literally the personal, we'll call it journal of God, to glean his design for complex things. If you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, we can't just make up the rules based on our preferences. First, 2 Timothy 3.16-17 reads, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, and teaching, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Listen, there are things in the Bible that I don't like are in there. And there are things in the Bible that I wish were different. But if we trust that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of our lives, then we also need to trust that the Bible is his authoritative teaching. It is meant to teach and rebuke and correct and train you in the way of Jesus. Some of our interpretations need refining to better understand the heart of the message that was originally given. But respectfully, some of our own decisions and our own values and perspectives and messaging from our culture needs to be refined and viewed through the lens of the word of God. I have a friend that was uh, living with his girlfriend before they got married. And I had a conversation with him, challenging him on his decision about this. And he said to me, I know that God doesn't want me to be doing this. But I really feel like he thinks it's okay because he understands how difficult it is. And I lovingly but straight up told him, I disagree with you and that you're going against God's word, God's will and his design. Because the word of God is so clear on that matter. God created sex exclusively for the sanctity of marriage. And anything outside of that is against his design. So while I agree that God understands the challenge in waiting, I don't agree that God is okay with it. The fact is that the word of God is the story and authority of Jesus, and he will never give you a personal revelation or a blessing to go outside of the boundaries that he has already set in scripture. Amen? I'm going to close with a quote from this book that we're referencing throughout this series. Again, you can get it in the lobby for $20 if you're interested in going going deeper. It says, you are welcome to reject Jesus and to reject the Bible. But what you can't do is accept Jesus and reject the Bible. 
because he's the one who set it apart. It would be a little weird to me to say, Jesus, I've come to you for my eternity to save me from my sins. I'm banking all my eternity on you, and I believe you are God himself in human form who came to earth. I believe that you did miracles and that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. But this book of yours, I can't buy into it. I don't believe that you have the power to set aside a collection of writings for your followers. So while I believe everything else, I think you're completely untrustworthy when it comes to the Bible. Jesus tells us it's God's revelation to us. It is God revealing himself and truth about himself that could not otherwise be known.